Welcome to Game Changers, a video game industry podcast brought to you by Convoy. We're a firm that invests in companies driving the future of the gaming industry. In this podcast, we will go beyond the gaming experience and highlight founders within the gaming space whose businesses and thought leadership sit at the frontier of the industry. I'm Jason Chapman. I'm Josh Chapman. I'm Jackson Vaughn. And we're the founders of Convoy. Each month, one of us is going to bring you a candid and open conversation with leaders in this industry. Who are these game changers? What have they built? And what are they doing now? Let's dig in. Today, we're chatting with Tim Fields, a legend who has been making, operating, and leading game companies for more than 25 years. Along the way, he has been part of bringing games to life in franchises like Call of Duty, Halo, Marvel, projects with Disney, Need for Speed, Fast and Furious, Transformers, Dungeons and Dragons, and many more. He has also won many Editor Choice Awards and generated billions of dollars in earnings for a lot of these companies I just mentioned. He also wrote a new book, Game Development 2042, details his expertise in company leadership, studio building, and product design. I would tell you to, to go check this out and read it and buy a copy. He did not tell me to do this, but you should go do it. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Jason, thanks for the kind words. I'm excited to be here with you today. Awesome. Well, we love to start off every podcast by asking our guests, what are you playing right now? Oh, I'm playing too many games. Let's see. One's some that excite me right this minute. I just started playing Dredge a few days ago, and it's a lot of fun. Vampire Survivors has me hooked just like it has everybody hooked still. Uh, on which topic, I still love Dead Cells. Play a lot of that game. Uh, Elden Ring, I'm not done with yet, and uh, I'm a completionist when it comes to these Souls games. So, And then beyond that, um, I still look in on uh, my friends at Disney Mirrorverse sometimes because I love what they do with their new characters. And uh, I recently really enjoyed the writing in Norco, which is an indie post-apocalyptic uh, cyberpunk game that's pretty narrative-heavy, set in ruined New Orleans of the future, and it's just a good example of how an indie team can use writing to build something wonderful. I have not played that game yet, and I, I do like narrative-heavy games, so I'm going to have to check this one out. But before we, we, we get lost into the, the topic of, of all the games that we love and get to play, let's go back to the beginning of Tim Fields, where it all started. Obviously, someone with your talent set, you could have chosen a lot of different industries to go into. What led you to devote yourself to games for the last 25-plus years? You know, Jason, the truth is, I started making games when I was a child. My first game was called Tim's Quest. I built it for my little brother. It was mostly done on poster board with markers, but also a Commodore 64 to help us figure out dice rolling and things. I remember going back to my red box, Dungeons and Dragons, and I had used whiteout to white out all rule sets that I didn't understand. I was maybe uh, nine years old. And I've been making games since then, since the days of the Commodore 64. But when I was about 17, a couple of old, old men, God, they had to have been 25, 28 years old, they said, hey, Tim, we really like that game you made, Smash the Police State. And uh, you want to come make games with us? And I thought that sounded like fun. And so um, I was shocked when they, they meant that they would pay me to do this. And so we, uh, we built some Jack Nicholas golf games back before anybody had ever heard of Tiger Woods. And we tried to build a, a Diablo killer called Lucifer. We built a fighting game with Jackie Chan and his people, and so on. That, that company was called Eclipse Entertainment. Moved from there over to 
Digital Anvil down in Austin, Texas. Uh, made a game called Brute Force. Worked with the team that built Freelancer. We were acquired by Microsoft, and eventually um, I moved up to the Pacific Northwest, joined Electronic Arts, learned to make games with them, worked on a bunch of great franchises, learned to ship a lot of product uh, in a timely fashion. And from there, you know, it was on. I love that. I love that. Well, I don't know. Is Tim's Quest still available for us to play live, or is that no longer supported? You know, that's an invitation-only game at this point. It's no longer supported. Got it. How has your approach to game design in your early career evolved over the years to where how you think about game design today in you know 2023 so one of the things that i love about game design as a discipline as an art is that it is continually evolving there are mediums books for example even music where while consumer tastes change a lot of things about the way that you build the piece of art haven't changed a ton, but games is constantly being reinvented. Game design in particular, I think has become fascinating because the types of people that you built games for back in the late 80s, back in the mid 90s, is very, very different than the audience that you can approach now. And these days, constantly, I ask myself for any game that uh, I'm involved with, how do we get 100 million people to love this thing? And that's a very different design challenge because people are really diverse. And then the hardware and the software that we've got to help us bring games to life is so much more powerful and it works in people's lives differently. What was the most challenging for you to navigate in your career that either ended up being positive for you and and your kind of view of games or maybe didn't end up so positive? Over the last 10 years, the price of entertainment dropped to free. Right now, you and I could spend the rest of our lives, every single waking second, enjoying first-class, terrific entertainment for no cost whatsoever, via YouTube and so on and so forth, right? And the same is true of games. You and I could play games for the rest of our lives, great games, and we could never pay a penny, and that would work. And so the advent of free-to-play, which is, in my opinion, what opened up our market to the entire world to billions of players that was a huge sea change you know back when you were thinking about games on pc games on playstation only games that came in at a 60 70 price point you would make a very certain type of game very certain type of product and the switch to free to play and the ways that you think about making viable businesses out of games that don't charge users anything necessarily that's a huge shift do you think that game designers and game developers feel that impact and at the end of the day they just want more and more people to enjoy the experiences they create? Or do you think it ever weighs on the minds of the creators that a lot of those people will never pay a dime for the product that they're experiencing? How do you think that impacts, I don't know, the psyche of game developers and game designers? Man, this is a great question and it's something that a bunch of us have had a lot of great conversations about over the last decade. And I can tell you that, yes, it does impact the psyche and the design approach and the way game developers think about what they do. And while, you know, everybody wants to get paid and needs to make a fair living and all of that, what I have found is that for most people, for most of us, the notion that you can build something that will positively touch and influence such a large number of humans on this planet is amazing. 
Our games can make the lonely find friends. It can help the powerless feel mighty. And people, because of the way uh, these games get played on phones these days, people can take our games into hospital rooms, into the final rooms of their lives. And that means we are allowing them to connect with their friends and with strangers around the world and have these amazing experiences, whether or not they pay us anything. And for a long time, there was this notion that free-to-play was wicked somehow because it asks some users to give you a bunch of money. I don't accept that at all. I think that it's thinking about it the wrong way. From my perspective, what is amazing is that you are willingly, voluntarily giving the fruits of your labor to huge audiences. And it is a-okay if they want to come to the party you throw and never give you a penny. And if other folks choose to, and if they want to drop $10 or $100 or $100,000, okay, that's great. They're only doing that because they love what you've built. What a wonderful affirmation as a creator. Does that make sense, Jason? Absolutely. I think the scale of impact that game developers and game designers have today is unprecedented. You know, obviously we've got 40% of the global population playing today, and that's absolutely amazing, right, in the gaming ecosystem. And that, that wasn't the case, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So very excited about that as a whole. You know, we've, we've talked about a few of the iconic franchises that you've worked on yourself. I have to ask, you know, what, what is the common trend that you've seen that sets the iconic pieces of IP and franchises away from those that, that didn't quite make it there? Mike has uh, been hooked from Tim's Quest, so there, that, that was the, uh, the objective and it succeeded. So there it is. That, that, that puts it next to Call of Duty in my book. You know, I think that when I think about what makes truly great games uh, and the ones that are really successful commercially and in the minds of players, often I think it comes down to quality of execution is certainly a big part of it. And this has become more and more true. The types of things you would put up with in a game, early Bethesda products, I'm thinking of you, Elder Scrolls, right? These games were amazing and they were buggy as hell. And that was okay because they were so innovative at their time. True open world stuff and all of this. Origin comes to mind for something similar. And these days, that doesn't play anymore. Your games have to be released perfectly. And CD Projekt Red, for example, got a reminder of this recently when their wonderful and ambitious product went out a little bit earlier than it probably should have. And that's a mistake we've all made. So I think flawless execution is part of it. The other thing I think is that characters and stories that resonate in the minds of large audiences are incredibly powerful. And because your audiences are so very diverse, providing an on-ramp for people from every walk of life and all different genders and cultures and backgrounds, this is really challenging and it's also very, very powerful. So if you can ask yourself as a game creator, how will a hundred different people, most of whom are nothing like me, how will they find emotional resonance in this game, in some character? Then you're on the right track. And truth be told, when I think about one of the most successful franchises in the world that I've learned a ton from in this regard, it's Marvel. Because whether you are a Muslim American female or a big guy with rage issues or 
a nerdy, scrawny kid in the Bronx? There's somebody for you that you can identify with here that acts as an on-ramp into this world. And that is an incredibly powerful thing. League of Legends, frankly, has always done a very good job of that as well with the character diversity that they bring to the table. So I believe that I believe that games, that franchises, that stories that invite everyone to participate tend to do really well in the long run by attracting and engaging and retaining very large audiences. No, I love that answer. I think uh, that is one of the exciting things about gaming. It's it's one of the great equalizers for everybody, right? You know, if you're 6'6 six, six versus a 10-year-old kid, like you're on an equal playing field, but where that's not the case in a sport like basketball, right? Um, it doesn't matter. And that's something that is so exciting. Uh, ironically, you could probably say the 10-year-old has a huge leg up on the 6'6 six, six adult in that scenario. All right, I want to move us towards your time at Kabam. Obviously, you know, you had a really prominent and exciting tenure there, and you got to see and shepherd the company through a pretty important time of uh, its life, navigating through the $800 million acquisition by Netmarble in 2017. I would love to hear your story of when you started there and then kind of your transition into being the CEO of the company. Yeah, and so I'd just love to hear about that experience. Sure. So... I joined Kabam in 2013 as the general manager of our Vancouver studio. And at that time, there were about 35 of us there. And it was a great group of kids that I fell in love with. But we'd made some games that were pretty good, but nothing that was making any money. We weren't profitable. And we set out to build Marvel Contest of Champions which a creative director at the time described to me as our love letter to the Marvel Universe. And that's what we built, and we built it fast, and we were overwhelmed with the response that it got. And there were a bunch of other great games at Kabam, and there were a ton of great game makers there and strong business people that I learned a ton from, a lot of folks that are friends now. But before long, Contest of Champions was earning the majority of the company's revenue. We built some other games that were very well regarded, won some Editor's Choice Awards and that kind of thing. And every one of the games we built there, I would describe as a labor of love from the teams involved. And that is the main way I think about my time at Kabam. I never worked with a more dedicated and passionate group of game makers. And in 2016, in an alley in Guro, suburb of Seoul, South Korea, we agreed to sell the company to Netmarble. And that transaction took place uh, in March of the following year, 2017. Netmarble asked me to take over as CEO at the time. I agreed to do that for two years. Ended up doing it for five through pandemic and a ton of transformation. We made a few more games and we made a great deal of money. And most importantly, we delighted a whole lot of players And I think a bunch of the kids that worked there had a lot of fun. And it was just a real treat to get to work with our friends in Korea who are terrific game makers with a ton of discipline and a ton of great insight into the gaming market and some really strong technologists. I got to enjoy drinking Somac and eating a lot of terrific Korean barbecue throughout Seoul. Made a lot of great friends along the way. And then 
last year, the beginning of the year, it was time to hand over the reins and move on. And I was honored to take a bow and say goodbye and give a big hug to all my friends and partners and, um, and set off on some new adventures. Tell me about that integration process. Obviously, you know, that's pretty rapid growth. A, a small team of 35 people growing to deliver the experiences that you all did for the games industry. In tw- you know, in 2017, that you were asked to be CEO. One, what, what did you think when they asked you that? Um, and then also, maybe what was the hardest part about trying to integrate the Kabam culture that you had worked so hard to steward over into, you know, this behemoth in, in entertainment, which is Nutmarble? Those are great questions. Uh, what did I think? I'm sure I thought, oh, God, I'm not ready for that. And that was probably true. You know, growth, rapid growth, uh, the Kabam entity that I paid attention to went from about 35 people as part of a larger company to about 700 people by the time I left. And people use the phrase growing pains uh, intentionally. And it's, you know, that's I think that's the right phrase. It is hard to grow rapidly. It's hard to preserve culture you always invariably lose some great things and you gain some other great things. So I think that scaling up companies is extremely challenging. I think that following up on huge hits is terrifically challenging, right? Because every game you make has this expectation that it's going to go be another billion dollar baby. And not all games work that way. Entertainment is not always like that. So I give a ton of credit to Netmarble because their approach to integration was extremely slow and patient and fairly hands-off for most of those first five years. I think that they understand well that when you acquire a company, one of the things we all learned from watching Electronic Arts back in the 90s was that one of the easiest mistakes to make is to break the thing you just bought. Westwood, I'm thinking of you. And so Netmarble did a great job of not making that happen, frankly, through a ton of cultural diplomacy and care and thought. Beyond that, you know, did Kabam grow very rapidly? Yes, it did. Uh, many mobile game companies did during the teens, 2014 to 2018. Why? Because um, it was a new business. We were all being very successful and there were constantly new opportunities. And you know what? I think there's still new opportunities. If you told me, Tim, your mobile game right now, your free-to-play game, should have a marketing and community and live operations team dedicated to every major country in the world. I would say, yes, I believe you. That is a good way to engage gamers and make a lot of money. So growth is always, growth in staff is always an anti-vision, but growth in players is the goal. And to do that, you need a lot of people who can specialize on helping expand your games. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you were thinking about this rapid growth and this expansion, what was something that you've reflected on, I'm sure, over the last year, kind of your tenure as CEO of, you know, this iconic games company? What would something you would have changed going back in your in your leadership? You know, what's something that you would have altered? And I ask this question because a lot of the people that do listen to you know, our podcasts are our business leaders in games. And many of them are CEOs probably going through some of the same growth pains that you probably had to experience. And so would love your insight on maybe something that uh, a listener here could learn from who's going through something comparable to, to the rapid growth you had to, had to steward over. Okay, I'll give you two. First, I'll give you the business answer. And second, I'll give you a more personal answer. If I had 
time at Kabam to do over again, I would have more aggressively embraced M&A and acquisitions as a way of bringing on additional game teams as opposed to trying to grow out those game teams organically one person at a time. That's one lesson that I would have learned. Now, you can't always do that. At the time, it seemed like EBITDA multiples on game company acquisitions were insane. Now, they seem like they would have been a great deal. So that's a business lesson that I learned. On a personal note, I guess what I would say is that the clubhouse of friends who all love one another that you can have at 35 or at 50 or maybe 90, you can't have at 600. And as a leader, that means you need to adapt and you need to adapt more rapidly and you need to be patient, more patient, more professional, kinder. And then finally, I would point out that culturally, the relationship between labor and capital between employees and bosses has changed a fair amount between 2013 and 2023, if you think about it. And some of those changes are challenging. You know, I grew up in a time way before EA Spouse when work-life balance was not a concept anybody talked about and when we genuinely did sleep under our desks to make these games. Was that good? Well, no, I'm not saying it was good, but that was the way we did it back then. And I think that often leaders are slow to adapt to cultural changes. And that's something that you have to get great at as your companies, as your sphere of influence, as the number of people that you want to work with and motivate changes. Does that make sense, Jason? Absolutely. I think that's something that all leaders have to navigate and struggle through is, you know, maybe what got you here isn't going to get you there and figuring out what is the delta that you have to navigate with your staff and with your team because you can only achieve so much as one an army of one hopefully you can achieve a ton more with your army of 10 20 or 600 and you know a question to, to kind of go into this a little bit further where do you see the challenges for you know leaders today who are navigating a completely different work culture right um, the expectations of employees today are, are quite a bit different than in the 90s, in the early 2000s. The demands that most employers can impose on output is different. And it sounds like you have a lot of uh, empathy, I think, for, for those who are navigating this situation, given you've navigated changes yourself as a leader. And so I would ask the question, how do you think leaders should be thinking about output hopefully being the same where you're, you're producing something of quality and of excellence, but maybe the, the way you, you demand and, and lead your staff to get there has changed from the way that maybe they, they got brought up sleeping under their desk, getting that same output. So I would love, I'd love your thoughts on if you're going to coach a, a leader on this call, what, what advice would you give them? You know, I've thought a ton about this as a leader, you are always failing if you are telling people how much they should work, how much they should work. Why? You cannot tell people how much they care. Only they get to decide that. And you can never know what other things in their lives, a child, an aging parent, a love affair gone wrong, you don't get to know 
what else is influencing their life, and therefore you don't get to know what else is competing for their time and attention. And the best thing you can do as a leader is to help people care and give as much to the mission as they are able based on their circumstance. And there's a quote that I think about a lot here. There was a Frenchman a couple hundred years ago, a guy who wrote The Little Prince, said, if you want to build a ship, don't get a bunch of people together and tell them to collect wood and nails. Instead, convince people to dream about the sea and to long for the ocean. That's the way you get people to build a great ship. And I think the same is true of gaming, and I suspect the same is true of every type of mission. That's a very thoughtful answer, and I appreciate that as a leader myself um, of, a, of a team. And I think there's a lot, of, a lot of truth and wisdom in that answer. I'm going to switch gears entirely for us here, and it's, go- it's going to a topic that you and I have chatted quite a bit about over email, over calls. We actually chatted about earlier this week. What are you most excited about that you see artificial intelligence being used by this industry that is touching 40% of the planet and counting? What gets you excited? Jason, you and I are fortunate in that we have lived through several transformative revolutions in society brought about by technology. Now, very sophisticated artificial intelligence data sets and programs that can do things with that knowledge and with mountains of data that humans can only barely even perceive. That's a transformative moment in human history. I don't think we've seen even the start of it. Frankly, I don't think society is even close to ready for the transformation that this is going to bring about. But I'm excited about the way that we can use predictive analytics to customize game experiences for each individual user, sometimes based on things that they may not even find perceptible. Let me give you an example. Imagine that we were able to take biometric data from a ring like this one that I'm wearing or from a smartwatch or from uh, an earring, and we were able to determine when a person's heart rate increased a little bit. And imagine that we were able to discern who they were looking at when that happened, okay? And, And imagine that we were then able to make the next NPC in a video game they were playing look kind of like that person because we knew that's what they were excited by. Okay, well, that's crazy. And what if I could use generative AI to create lifelike humans, like Unreal has shown us all how to do with MetaHuman, that looked like somebody you trusted or loved? What happens when your grandfather, as a young man maybe, shows up as your co-pilot? in a flight simulator game. That's powerful. We couldn't do anything close to that for a long time. And I can make that look like every single player's beloved relative, if we wanted to. Okay, well, the emotional impact of the connections that you can allow people to make with characters is amazing. Absolutely. And I I think you're hitting on a topic that I've, I've thought a lot about where you know, we've gone through content explosions, which is positive in so many different ways of just sheer top of funnel quantity is so much higher today than it was yesterday. 
and it's going to continue to increase at a clip that agree with you that we have probably never seen before and we have to think through managing i don't think the games industry has a has a great clue of what to do next to navigate this and not just for gaming for entertainment as a whole but would love your thoughts on this content navigation issue that is present today and is going to get exponentially worse i think over the next couple of years I think this is a great question, and, and it speaks to a lot of the heart of the existential questions in the games business right this minute. You know, eight years ago, targeted advertising, performance marketing, was more or less the way you could go get users. And for various reasons, that's become a lot less viable as an approach now. And I think that the explosion of content that you describe is upon us. And we've seen that already in some ways. You know, when I was a kid, when I was making games on the Commodore, or even when I was making games for PlayStation 2, if you were a game maker, you could have played almost every game that came out every year and have a, have a, a thought on it. Well, even playing every game that came out this week would be wholly impossible for you and I. Right. There's so much stuff out there and a lot of it's great. I think all of this makes word of mouth, your friends recommendations ever more powerful. I think that the rise of paid influencers has made people a little bit cynical about folks they don't know. Testimonials uh, have made everybody recognizes now that celebrity and other types of testimonials are advertising. Just because Kim Kardashian says the thing is great doesn't mean much. All it means is she got paid to say that. And everybody recognizes that now, or at least a lot of people do. And so I think that the value of oh, user Metacritic scores, for example, um, has become increasingly powerful because people want to know what their friends are playing. They want to know what other gamers like them think. I think that a bunch of the technologies that places like Reddit, frankly, moved forward hugely where users get to upvote things they're interested in. I think that fundamental concept is very, very valuable and important. But then we've seen the complexities of what happens when you unleash a bunch of bots onto that, right? I'm looking for people to solve this right now actively. And I think this is a huge pain point today. And it's, it's about to become almost just irrecoverable if we don't think through this really carefully over the next couple of years with with the you know utilization of a, a really cool technology set under the artificial intelligence branch i think these are i think those are really good thoughts and the use of of ai machine learning in order to help validate and legitimize sources whose opinions you trust and care about i think is a really valuable lens for thinking about this problem you know fundamentally we've all learned to be or should have all learned to be very distrustful of, of social media and the like, thanks to Cambridge Analytica and all of that. And when I think about how two different people in my lives would have been influenced, I think about my grandfather going to the coffee shop and what it said in the paper about who he should vote for, he would have paid no attention to. But what those other old men in the coffee shop talked about, that he would have believed. And I think about my nephew. And every weekend, he and his homies are picking a different game and they're all going to play it. And how is it picked? Well, whoever the alpha pup in his crew is has picked that game. And because they said uh, that's the game, then they're all going to go play it. And how do we bring those types of 
networks of trusted, known personal influencers to people in the online space and make them free from meddling? I think that's a fascinating question that would be fun to spend a bunch of time on. Yeah, I think uh, something, somebody challenged me recently when they said, you know, every single person that you subscribe to or every single person that you follow, I want you to think through this lens. I'm allowing that person to influence me, right? And I'll tell you that ever since he's posed that question to me, uh, my friend asked me this, I think a couple couple years ago, I've been really thoughtful and, and actually rethought who I follow on whatever platform it is, right? Who am I allowing to influence my decision-making? And I think it's a great question for us to consider, right? Who is influencing your decisions? And gosh, this is a, a more of a societal topic that doesn't just impact games, but everything that we kind of touch and feel and interact with. But absolutely, we could have, you know what, Tim, next podcast, we'll just dive into this one topic. Perfect. We could probably chat for two, three hours on this. All right. I do have to segue us off of this. So I know we've got some entrepreneurs listening to this that would love your, you know, you've already given several nuggets of wisdom in this in this uh, podcast, but for the aspiring entrepreneurs in gaming out there, any core pieces of advice that you'd want to tell them, how you would approach doing business in 2023, things you wish you knew when you were, you know, earlier on in your career. So any advice you'd give to the aspiring entrepreneurs of the next generation of games? Find a small crew of people who are passionate about what you're passionate about and figure out how to create those things that you all love and are motivated by. And if you can do that, then you can be guaranteed that there is a huge audience out there these days who will love them as well. I think that's about as good of an ending note as I can ask for. Thanks, Tim, so much for for, for joining us on this. And, you know, thank you for everyone here listening to another episode of the Game Changers podcast. Special thanks again to our guest, Tim Fields. Honestly, just loved learning so much about how we're thinking through utilizing kind of the next wave of technology into the gaming industry, rethinking and thinking through what has worked before and what will probably not work going forward anymore. And if you like what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like reading up on deep dives on the gaming industry, sign up for our our weekly newsletter at convoy.vc. Join us next month and have a great week. Thank you so much.